0: This is Forward Exchanges by Neom. What's next in moving money around the world, one global conversation at a time.
1: Welcome back to Forward Exchanges from Neom. From unlocking the potential of payroll for a global workforce, to picking up the pace of payments in the travel industry, we've covered a wide range of topics so far in season two. Today, we're taking a look back at these conversations about the driving forces behind modernizing money movement and what's building or blocking its momentum. First, you're gonna hear a conversation about revolutionizing real-time payments with Robin Gandhi, chief product officer at Neum, and Reid Lutainen, executive director at the US Faster Payments Council and strategic advisory board member at Identify. Reed and Robin spoke with me about the growth of real-time payments in the US, as well as what we can learn from places around the globe that are ahead of the curve, especially when it comes to consumer education and fraud prevention.
2: I think we focus a lot on, for example, India, and I think this is true to as far as it goes, right? So in India, you look at, they have the UPI, which was sort of a government project, government-ish project, but they also had a QR codes that were made through a, a standard that they could all adopt. They have universal ID law, like they have all kinds of different things that sort of all sort of work as a suite together to sort of create that opportunity. But that's not really why it's been so successful. Things like this aren't pushed into a market because the technology becomes available. They're pulled by demand. And and that's what's been happening in those markets like you talked about. They they were not being as adequately served as the U.S. and Western Europe have historically been by payments, right? So I think there was a pull, there was more of a demand for them to succeed there. That being said, there is plenty of, and I think we talked about it earlier, there's plenty of demand here too. It's just maybe a little different and has to be sort of teased out a little bit. But I think, yeah, we're absolutely looking at what are they doing there that's working? What is, you know, maybe not worked? And I think, you know, the easiest example are some of the things that have been done around fraud prevention and around sort of helping educate as you're rolling this out to help customers and consumers understand the potential risks there, right? Because the example I always point to is the Take Five to Fight Fraud campaign in the UK, right? To help people like think like, hey, I need to pause and think about this and think about whether I know for sure that this is going to the person and they really do have the dog that I'm supposedly buying here.
1: That was my next question, which is about on the one hand, having payments move quickly is great. Right. But there are some risks associated with it. I think of my 84 year old father <laughs> trying to make payments and the trouble that he might get into. I, you know, a Zelle payment in the U.S. is super powerful. It's convenient. But what do we do if, you, if we make a mistake in who we send money to? A typo. Or what have we seen around identity and risk in other markets maybe that we might be able to learn from, Robin?
3: And I think this is kind of what Reed was alluding to as well. Right. Like I think there is like there's clearly areas that that we need to educate consumers and and people that are that are sending money to say like hey here's here's how you could get yourself into trouble like i think in india you've seen people getting fished in terms of okay well i am this merchant or i am this person send me your money and then once the money goes out then then it's gone right i think what you see brazil doing now a little bit more of right because i think there has been a lot of fraud that's happened there and then like they've also seen situations where back in the day when people would get kidnapped and take money out of the atm now they can just ask them to do a pix transaction but they they've started implementing things like not allowing transactions that are x size to go through like at certain hours of the night because that seems suspect they're looking at it from a centralized database perspective so they're doing a better job of being able to figure out like where there might be bad actors. Inevitably, like as soon as you allow more players into the system, like you're gonna have fraudulent merchants, you're gonna have like people that are gonna try to take advantage of of certain things in the system, especially when it's it's hard to get your money back, right? So like once you make the mistake then then there, it, it's tough to to change it. But look, I, I think this is the way forward. I mean, that's why you're seeing so much adoption. That's why we're talking about this here. That's why all the countries around the world are, are talking about, like, how do we get ourselves on real time? How do we operate amongst ourselves in real time? So, like, this is the future. This is where it's heading. I think we just need to make sure that we don't put people, businesses in a place where they're kind of putting their money at risk. And I think everyone's thinking of the right things. And it, there'll be some teething pains, but we'll we'll get there over time. <laughs>
1: As complex as real-time payments is, it sounds like we're practically there already, even if it sometimes doesn't always feel like it. Thanks to Reed and Robin for fighting the good fight for real-time payments and for joining us this season. Another topic we explored this season was the historical underrepresentation of women in fintech. There have been strides to increase women in leadership positions and advance women's participation in money movement globally, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Listen in to part of my conversation with Jill Doherty, VP of Customer Success for Europe at Neam, and Resika Reina, Senior Vice President of Strategy and Transfer Solutions at Mastercard, on lifting up women in the fintech space. The IMF put out a report in 2022 called Women in Fintech as Leaders and Users, and they stated that women hold less than 25% of board seats in banks and bank supervision agencies, and they account for about 5% of bank CEOs globally. And in addition to that, the FinTech Diversity Radar Report notes that women who make up roughly half of the world population are only at CE level 6% of FinTechs and even less, 4%, are in the key technology roles of CIO or CTO, chief information or chief technology officer. And then this part might surprise you. There is a positive relationship between having more women on executive boards and the revenue earned by the respective fintech firms, as well as the funding that they receive for future investments. 10% higher share of women on executive boards is associated with a roughly 13% higher revenue and funding earned by a firm. For every dollar of funding received, women-founded fintechs generate 78 cents in revenue, while male-founded fintechs generate just 31 cents. I thought... This sounded pretty solid, and I was curious about each of your takes on this and how each of you has come to understand how your own role has helped contribute to how women in our industry are working to lift others up and lift revenue up directly or indirectly. I think some of my view is, is a lot of
0: the barriers to entry were made significant because men were employing men because they were kind of leading banks and then it just kind of amplified. So until we had some of the DNI parameters and we looked at the revenue and we looked at kind of the gender makeup, none of this really got unpacked. To your point, the research is there both in financial services and the research you just suggested now or the data that you just suggested now for fintech is there, that the earning potential and the investment potential is significantly more when you have a more gender diverse organization and, and leadership team. And I've certainly seen that, that a lot of teams that I've led previously would tell me, oh, there are no women. So there's a hundred excuses in the book on why it can't be done, but there are great women. And I think we've just got to, we got to
1: find them, We got to make sure that we're attracting them through the right channels, Rosika, I wanted to get your take on this maybe from a slightly different angle, since I know that your biggest business is a remittance business and it's focused largely on the unbanked or the underbanked. And we know that typically the unbanked or the underbanked tend to overwhelmingly be women, regardless of geography. I was just curious as to how in your current role, if you see the pain points and sort of see your role as being able to help lift that up a little bit.
4: Remittances are a very complex area, right? And surprisingly, it's a very, you would think an easy enough payment flow, but it has immense complexity. And we have acknowledged that complexity. We acknowledge that there are people, there are women especially who are unbanked, underbanked, and about 50 to 60% of remittances are still routed to those women. So one of the big things that we wanna do as a part of this exercise is figure out how can we digitize the people who are in this cash economy? How do we get them to have more control over their financial freedom? Ultimately, financially free women are empowered women. They are the women who can use more financial services because they have access to digital economy. So this is something that MasterCard, especially the transfer solutions part of MasterCard, which processes remittances and disbursements, That is our world, And we're seeing that steady decline from cash and how we're seeing digital payout methods actually going up.
1: It is slow, but it's steady. I love that we got to hear from two incredible women who make a difference in fintech by doing the hard work of driving opportunities for women in places where there previously weren't very many. Thanks to Rasika and Jill for being here this season. Technology has enabled a work-from-anywhere economy, where companies and employees could be connected from across the globe with ease. What isn't as simple, however, is staying on top of multi-country payroll and the regulations and restrictions that can hinder hiring and paying a global workforce. Michael Birmingham, co-founder and chief business officer at NEAM and Letitia Moncars, global head of payments at Papaya, helped to break down some of the key considerations for businesses entering new global markets.
5: The hiring
6: process is complex, no matter where you are and what you're doing. But when you go to hiring a global workforce, understanding the regulations around employment law, taxes, benefits, employee classifications, and how they get paid. Is it through ACH or direct a card mechanisms like a wallet? Really understanding the employee expectations while managing local compliance and laws. Employers really need to choose a model that works for their global teams, employers, will need to decide how they manage payroll if they do it in-house, utilize a PEO, or work with an employee of record model. Really find what is the best fit for them.
5: When it comes to recruiting or finding talents, it's not so scary. You have access to a larger uh, talent pool. However, it is much more complex to deliver the same onboarding experience for the new joiner. The complexity on the payment side, payroll payments, Is Each country has its own set of rules and regulations. To pay the employee, the employer will need to follow different payment timelines and use different payments rates. From a payment angle, it is not a global transaction. It's a local transaction that needs to come from a local source, from a local bank account.
6: I agree. It is a local payment because people... These freelancers, employees, and contractors don't want to receive a foreign currency into their bank account and then have it exchanged at the bank and then receive all those fees, making a local payment to an employee or a contractor or a freelancer. They want to receive everything in local currency because all that conversion is happening before they receive their money and they know how much is coming in. When it's sent from a foreign currency and converted at a bank, they really don't know how much they're going to receive and and what fees are gonna be attached to it.
1: Because remote hiring has to go hand in hand with global payroll, Leticia, I'll start with you. How are you seeing that symbiosis play out in real time?
5: There are two parts in the process. First is the calculation. Calculation from the workforce solution, such as Papaya platform, calculation on the net salary, expenses, allowances. The second part is the payment payments in different jurisdictions, with different currencies, with different timelines. The first part of the process, we have the knowledge, we have local partners to always be on top of any new rules that can impact the calculation. For the second part, we have our own e-money license to avoid intermediary and to streamline the process, access to real-time payments rails, to add also accounts validation to minimize the payments failure. The payment solution embedded in the platform, in the workforce management platform, is a game changer, making the end-to-end process seamless.
1: Michael, while remote global hiring has a lot of benefits attached to it, like access to this vast uh, pool of talent, it has some challenges as well, right? I imagine if it's so complex to hire across borders and time zones, the payments associated with it are just as complex. And what Leticia is describing to me sounds like it could ball up in a big mess really quickly.
6: Paying the global workforce on time and in their local currency through their preferred method can be challenging for HR's teams and payroll providers since they have to deal like exactly right, like currency fluctuation, local laws and compliance, time zone differences, cultural and legal differences, The speed and reliability and payout capabilities are very difficult to manage, as well as working with the right partner to manage the payment needs that have global coverage and have that reliability.
5: Most of the time, employees are paid in the local currency of the country in which they are based. But when you start hiring globally, you can end up with a mismatch between the currency location of your business and the currency and the country in which you need to pay some of your employees. Let's take an example. A client is based in the US. It means he he has a a lot of revenue or most of uh, his revenue generated in the US in USD. And he might have some employees in Europe to to be paid in Europe. The company will need to manage the complexity of the funding on the currency conversion and the cross-border payments. That's why it becomes very complex to to manage for those companies.
1: Having been a cross-border freelancer for some years myself, that conversation was one of my favorites because it helped me really contextualize the work that I do with Niam every day. Thanks to Letitia and Michael for being with us this season. So our money is moving more efficiently across the globe, but what about when we want to travel? In my conversation with Spencer Hanlon, Global Head of Travel Payments at Neum, and Paul Van Alphen, Managing Director of the Travel Payment Consultancy Up in the Air, we discussed the unprecedented challenges the travel sector has faced trying to keep up with the demands of the modern traveler. How do we get payments up to speed? Listen in. Looking ahead to the future, I would love to get both of your input on what what in-store for the payment and travel landscape over the next few years, or alternatively, what are you excited about in the next two to three years? What's coming up over the horizon that gets you out of bed in the morning that, that you love to talk about? I'll start with you, Paul. should highlight one topic that we did not really touch on
7: yet. And that's especially where, like I said, the no, travel agencies take payments, they then have to come to an agreement with the supplier on how to pay, and the suppliers have become more vocal about it, on how they get paid and what conditions, but also should not disrupt any of their existing processes, should not introduce new reporting, should not for the burden on the staff that they have to learn new tricks. But ideally, it, it would have all the benefits, but at the lower cost. I think that's where, for instance, if you use a hybrid where you trick the system into thinking it's a credit card or it's a card transaction with an authorization, with settlement, with reporting, that pretty much mimics what the, the supplier in his case, except. But then, Take an alternative route with the money movement in the background. That's a, a very good compromise uh, where yeah. you can meet in the middle, where travel is incentivize, where uh, that they can create these kind of payments spot because they use existing technology, and are the in this case the airline can receive the funds in the way that they expected. They, the, re- the reporting is similar to what they were same as that they were expecting, and also now the cost is below what they they find it. That, that's for me, is also an important way was future.
1: Spencer, how about you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? I think I have to harp back to an experience,
8: it must be like eight, nine years ago, when I first took an Uber. And I took it from central London back out to the uh, suburbs of London. So it was a fairly chunky trip. And the reason why we took it was we couldn't get a train. And I remember the experience up to that point with taxis and especially longer rides. You're constantly looking at the meter and worrying, do I have enough cash in my wallet? As the meter keeps going up, the anxiety rises and then you have to ask them to pull over or find a cash point and the whole thing gets awkward. And then you put that, if it's a business trip, you put that receipt in your pocket and you have to remember not to wash the trousers with it in and all that sort of good stuff. Then the first Uber I take and literally you get out of the cab you shut the door, your phone pings, you can take a screenshot of that, put that straight into your expense claim. Payment there and that understanding about making it seamless behind the scenes, still tr- you trust it. You know exactly how much you paid. So it is not intransparent, but it's seamless and it gets out the way. That for the first time took some of the theory and the academic talk And really brought it home to me. And I think in terms of the stuff we've spoken about, globalization, merchandising, giving options. Let's talk about more socials, about being able to pay and see the tip that you give to the hotel person in Bali actually get to them, right? We're not there yet. But these sort of things that, 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 that make that, I have to get cash, I have to give cash, I have to make sure I don't get robbed. I had to get the right change. I don't know what the exchange rate is. All of those things that come with money in the global world, I think with innovation, with the amount of creativity, with the fintech movement, all of that stuff incrementally is just going to get more and more exciting. And our kids are going to experience an entirely different way of paying. Now, whether it's crypto or not, I think that's all irrelevant. (laughs) There is so much improvement that can happen with just good hard that cash as it is today are the currencies we know today. It's thrilling. It's exhausting keeping up with it all, but I love it. And, and you couldn't talk to two more nerds about the topic than the two you have today. <laughs>
1: Every time I travel internationally now, I think back to conversations like this with Spencer or his industry colleagues, and I'm always amazed at how I can actually see their work reflected in how travel payments are changing, trip to trip and country to country, year to year. Thank you, Paul and Spencer, for joining me this season. Another dramatic shift in the global economy is the rise of online creators, a multi-billion dollar industry that's only going to keep growing. With such a large chunk of money being paid out to creators, why are businesses still having trouble paying creators on time and in the correct amounts? Max Lehman, SVP of Business Development at Neum, and Christian Nino de Guzman, founder at Clara, joined me to discuss where folks are stumbling and how tech innovations can help businesses succeed in the creator economy.
9: When these creators create content, then also what I experience is that they have the same expectation around monetization experience that they would have as a user. So if, if you're on Netflix, Spotify, Uber, or in fact on any e-commerce platform, you would expect that the transaction goes through in real time, at least in a couple of seconds. So as a creator, you also you want to be settled in, in real time and, and not wait for s- several days. And That's sometimes the other sort of challenge that I see when you are a global platform and you work with creators.
10: The most important thing to any creators, no matter where you're based, if it's in the U.S. or like a a, a more emerging market, is that creators just want to be paid. They want to be paid fast. They want to be paid accurately. The amount that they expected were contracted to, and they don't want extra fees deducted. And I think Ultimately, speed is, I would say, the most important thing. At the end of the day, the creators are relying on the brands that they work with for this fast payment. And for some reason, it's really hard for a lot of brands to recognize that paying creators on time is really the most critical component of any brand deal or any work that you're doing with creators. And any sort of late delayed payment or processing fee is really
1: i would say a pain point for all of the creators. And there's two ways that creators get paid first of all. There's there's the brand deals, making sure that brands have the ability to pay their creators, but there's also ad revenue shares. And th- there's definitely a lot of pain points that have had to be worked out over the years with getting those revenue shares paid out. What are some of those challenges?
10: Yeah, I think especially on the platform side is we're thinking a lot of the new social platforms that are coming out and won't name names, but a lot of them, surprisingly, it is really challenging and it becomes really complex when internally they're having to collect creators, social security numbers, driver's license, identification. And I will say in my experience... uh, A lot of the platforms that I personally have worked with creators on monetizing through AdSense or video views, a lot of them aren't aren't transparent and upfront with the creators on when they can expect payment. And it's really, it's hard as a creator because I think creators want that same reliability as corporate professionals where every 15th of the month you can expect a paycheck. And I think a lot of the platforms right now, that is something that they could be doing a lot better with is providing transparent communication and clear payment dates and deadlines to the creators and allowing creators to set up auto-withdrawal and all these other types of tools that would really help them monetize and make a living with ease.
9: What is crazy, if you think about it, it vary, it varies per platform. So there's no standardization in it at all, right? So you see uh, platforms that pay out in a couple of days, if you're lucky, with a minimum threshold, but there is platforms where you have to first make at least a hundred dollars and then you need to wait 15 days and and worse. So there's really no standardization in the industry.
1: That lack of transparency is really surprising given the size of the creator economy. And I was floored by a statistic in a recent report that Neum released. I'll just quote it here. Creator Platform's global sales estimated to reach $958 in 2022. That's not a small country's GDP (laughs) right there. It's amazing to me how the creator economy, specifically the payment side, has evolved since I first began working with web creators over 15 years ago. Kristen and Max's work has an outsized and incredibly positive impact on how creators get paid now, which is a great thing. Thanks for being here this season, Kristen and Max. That is all the time that we have today. I hope you've enjoyed taking a look back at this season of Ford Exchanges so far, because I know I have. I want to say another thank you to all of our guests who have joined us this season and to you for listening. Make sure to leave us a review if you've been liking the show, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Check us out at slash forward exchanges or wherever you've listened to podcasts. I'm Siobhan O'Neill-Schwenk, and this has been Forward Exchanges from NEAM.